Welcome to the Leadership Drives Podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Welcome to part two of our interview with Richard Harker, the Executive Director of Historic Oakland Foundation and Cemetery in Atlanta, Georgia. If you didn't catch part one, it's worth going back to get it. Now, let's pick up where we left off. You mentioned, you know, as you're trying to maintain some degree of historical integrity in terms of how you present things, that you have 300 volunteers. When I think of organizations that have large volunteer bases, um, my first thought is, what are you selling people? I mean, to get not only volunteers, but 300 of them to keep coming back. And then I'm thinking they're doing walking tours in hot lanterns. <laughs> <laughs> What's, what draws people? And by the same token, my next question is going to be, and what are you doing as well to attract staff? What's so great about the culture here that people want oh, to gosh. be here? Well, yeah, I mean, we have every, everything... I do, we do, we are walking on the, the shoulders of those that came before us. And in the early 2000s, the, the foundation had, a, you know, fledgling staff of a couple of, a couple of people. And, and the very first director of special events and volunteers was a force of nature, Mary Woodland. And when the staff was five or six people built this volunteer program from, from the ground up, from scratch. And you know, attracted an incredible group of volunteers, but really focused on culture. So how are we celebrating our volunteers? How are we empowering them to succeed? How are we setting them up for success? And that is something that, you know, comes from the top down and something that I believe in. Um, I've worked with volunteers my whole professional career. I was the president of the American Association for Museum Volunteers. Um, for a while, um, which is a great organization that supports volunteer managers. Um, and so I think that's something that comes from the top down. And when we talk about organizations that have successful volunteer programs, it has to be culture, organization-wide. Um, so we talk a lot about how do we keep our volunteers as it grows, as they, as they do more, how do we keep them tapped in to succeed? Um, so that they know what's going on, but also what new training do we need to give them? What kind of you know new procedures do we need to have operationally to support them? Um, and so that's an ongoing project and, and something that our staff is really attuned to, especially as we've, we're going through this growth inspired by our capital campaign, building new facilities, we're doing so much more work than we've ever done before, we're launching new programs. How do we bring volunteers along with us? Um, is there something in particular that you do that you think it's vital to a successful volunteer? Oh, I mean, it's it's all of the little things. It's it starts with um, when we're onboarding volunteers and we have that sort of initial orientation session, the volunteer handbook, the the training schedules that we have for our tour guides. Um, it's the daily interactions with staff. It's the seasonal appreciation parties. We're actually just scheduling a summer brunch um, where, you know, we'll do do some biscuits and coffee on a hot on a hot morning, you know, before Labor Day to just kind of get everyone together um, for some some socialization. 
It's um, saying thank you to people when you see them. It's knowing people by name when you when you see them on the ground. You know, I make a point of trying to talk to every volunteer I see and get to know them and and thank them for being there because we truly couldn't do what we do. And I say that to the the staff every day. Um, And then as we've hired staff, hiring people that their sensibility is to support volunteers rather than see them as a nuisance. Because there are some people who think, gosh, volunteers are just, you know, they're an extra extra thing for me to do on my to-do list. And we've really prioritized as we've hired people who really sort of, you know, embraces working with volunteers and, and sees that as something that's rewarding and not d- detracting from their daily work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just all of those sort of little pieces. But, you know, during one of the silver linings of, of the pandemic was that we started doing these Zoom, we call them State of Oakland. It's like the State of the Union, except none. <laughs> I, don't, I forget why we came up with that name, but it was, it was probably me because it's a stupid name. But um, so, so, you know, we did these Zoom meetings, which I guess we were doing every couple of months during COVID because people weren't here, they weren't interacting. So how do they know what's going on? How are they keeping up with things? And we've continued it afterwards because... As, mu- as many emails as we send out, as many things that we communicate, you know, having a chance for those volunteers to get on the Zoom meeting at 7 p.m. on a Tuesday night with me and some of our staff, we'll talk about what's going on. The staff will talk about what's coming up and then the volunteers can ask questions and they can sit, you know, in the chat. Hey, what's going on with this thing? Or, you know, who do I contact to get a new name badge? I mean, the little stuff and the big stuff. And, um, you know, so... Over-communication is always something we're trying to do. And, um, you know, we're always open to new ideas too. And they're trying to empower our volunteers to, to understand that if there's something they think could make the place better, say it. We're not proud. Like, tell us, tell us what we could do better. Like, always open to new ideas. I don't, and, and I don't think in general, as a rule, I don't think I like... I try not to be territorial. It's like, I don't think I've got the perfect solution for everything. Like if someone has a good idea, if a member of staff has a good idea, let's talk about it. You know, let's implement it. Let's try it. How, what's your approach dealing with staff? I mean, since you have this fierce commitment to volunteers, what do you do to create a culture that keeps your staff turnover low? (laughs) Well, it's funny because actually we've had a lot of turnover recently and I think Coming out of the pandemic, um, you know, we'd had a two or three year period where things were pretty static and everybody was hunkered down and just we were all trying to survive. And then the last 18 months or so, we've had we've had a good amount of turnover. And some of that was a few people retired. A few people went and had other opportunities, you know, elsewhere. Um, A few people were ready for their next opportunity. Um, And... Um, so we've gone through a, a period of 18 months where, you know, 40%, 45% of the staff is, is new. Wow. Uh, yeah. How do you deal with that? Well, we're, we're really focused on culture right now. Mm-hmm. As, we, as we make sure that our folk are set up to succeed, that we have the right culture in place around them to help them succeed. Um, and to also, to your point, to retake people, right? So, how large is your staff? 
we were at one point a few months ago, we were at about 24 people with some regular contractors on top of that. Some of our landscape people are 1099 contractors. So anywhere so from 24 to 30 people are getting checks from us every couple of weeks. Um, and we've had 10 or 11 new people in the last 18 months. Um, and that's part of our growth, you know, and we knew that as we reached this moment in the campaign where we had the facilities, where we were doing more, there were some people who came to Oakland six or seven years ago who were right for Oakland at that moment in time. And we've just gone through this radical period of growth. And that would mean that there would be some people that would leave and we would hire new people to kind of come in and, and um, help take the organization forward. Um, but it's, it's a, you know, I talk with my senior team, we meet every Monday morning and we dedicate a portion of that conversation to talk about culture every single week, whether it's poll surveys, um, whether it's compensation and benefits, um, we just updated our family leave policy, um, you know, it's, it's building an environment that is supporting people and helping them succeed. And I really think of my role as how do, how do we, how does everyone have, can I get everybody the resources they need to succeed and then putting them in the position to succeed. And um, we launched a culture document across the organization early this year, I guess it was March maybe, um, February, March. And it outlines what our expectations are because you can say it until you're blue in the face, but you want to write it down because it holds everybody to account, myself included. But it also talks about what are some of our best practices. Don't email after hours. And if you get an email after hours, there's no obligation to respond until the next morning. When you go on vacation, turn your out of office on and assign a, um, you know, assign somebody else to receive, you know, important emails. And some of these are sort of basic things, but, but crystallizing them also holds us to account. Um, you know, I think you're right that some of these things are basic. I tend to think much of leadership is basic in theory. It's the application yeah. that screws us up. It's getting people to actually do the things you talk about. Time when you're out of office, I can't tell you how many leaders I talk to who say, "I want to make sure we have this culture that respects balance." But you send emails at. 5 a.m. whenever you're up. And then they say things like, there's no expectation that you will respond. And I believe because of the power differential with staff members, you can say that, but I still think people experience a certain amount of pull, a certain amount of pressure to do it. So to your point, when you start thinking about what does that culture mean, really getting clear on what yeah. does it mean and how do we make it real, that's tough. It is, and it requires constant attention. Constant. And it requires... Um, requires constant intention as well. I mean, you know, we've, we, we're, it's one of those things where, you know, when you talk about things and it sort of becomes the joke, the, the schedule sent. So now after hours, if you're going to send an email and it isn't urgent, schedule sent so that it arrives the next morning at 8.30 a.m. Exactly, exactly. And it's now the joke of like, somebody accidentally doesn't schedule send and then they're like, I meant to schedule send and I didn't. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, we value and I value nimbleness and people's flexibility and people's willingness to pitch in. We're not a huge organization, so we do need, you know, I won't ask anybody to do anything at Oakland that I wouldn't do myself. So I've fixed toilets. I've, you know, I've put my arm down the porta potty. Like we've, I, you know, I will do That's this. That's right, you said porta potty. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and, and so I, you know, I, I will not ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do. I, I stuff 
500 envelopes for a donor mailing. Like, you know, I'll watch TV in the evenings and, and stamp those envelopes. Um, so how do you balance nimbleness and flexibility and asking people to, um, you know, go above and beyond and really sort of put their heart into it with also respecting work-life balance, knowing that this is not, this is not Grady Hospital, right? We're not dealing with, you know, most of the time we're not dealing with acute situations. So how do we respect that? And, um, and like a lot of small nonprofits, you know, we, we are not flush with resources. So, you know, in an ideal world, I'd love to pay everyone $100,000 a year and have so many gardeners that everybody could work 40 hours a week and, and sign out and it would be all taken care of. And that isn't our reality. And sometimes people, when there's been a heavy rain and the grass is growing, have to work that little bit harder. So how do we then as an organization take it that into account? How do we respond to that? How do we, you know, give people extra time off where we can? Um, it's it's a work in progress. When you were seeing people leave over the last 18 months or so, I don't know if you did focus group, excuse me, uh, exit interviews. Yeah, we did. What were some of the reasons, other than just, you know, life, I wanted to do something new, did anybody give you any sort of feedback about the culture that you found um, to be worth implementing or taking very seriously? Yeah, I mean, we've, we always do exit interviews, that's the standard part of our practice, and, you know, we had one of our, our director of special events, um, you know, her husband got a six-figure job in North Carolina, and they moved. And I'm happy for them. I was sad. I was sad to lose her. She was a great, a great colleague. Um, but you know, that's what's good for her family. And she actually just texted me the other day to say that they're pregnant, and okay. and I'm excited for them. Um, there were, you know, other folk who admitted in their exit interviews that Oakland, the foundation, needed to grow. It was, it was growing, but they were having a hard time with the growth. And that's something that I, I pay a lot of attention to, which is, you know, I think when you're in leadership, sometimes you can kind of have like, you could, you're looking at the North Star the whole time. You're always looking at how are we get in from A to B. And, you, and sometimes it's easy to forget about what's the journey from A to B look like for people. Um, and that's where I spend a lot of time talking to the senior team about, you know, how do we, how do we make sure everyone's set up to succeed? And also, as we hire new people, as we as we bring new people into the organization, how we hire, how we hire for culture. And we talk about we've talked a lot about that in the last eighteen months. Um, you know, we want to make sure we have the right people aligned with our our values and our, our objectives. There. Wow. You know, I am preparing for a speaking engagement in a few weeks. And one of the challenges that the organization is facing, they're similarly sized, is not just hiring for culture, but their issue is persistent turnover mm. and getting really clear about one of the things, about what's causing them to have what I'm calling like that revolving door effect. Yeah, and we, I don't think we've had that. Yeah. We, I think what we've gone through and what happens often is that you don't realize you're going through something until you're... 80% of the way through, and you're like, oh, this is where we are, which is we reached a moment in our organizational life, start, uh, life cycle where we were making the next jump. And before I came in 2014, the organization went from five or six people to 12 or 13 people. And it was a big jump. And I've, heard this, I've heard those stories. Now we're going from 
that type of an organization to a much more professional, larger organization, and we're at, and we're building the facilities to accompany that. And so, what I've what I've really come to understand in the last eighteen months as is not a revolving door, but it's kind of this is our human capital campaign. We've been we've been investing in our facilities through the actual capital campaign, and now we're investing in our people, and that also includes. You know, better benefits, better healthcare packages, um, a more generous family leave policy. Uh, you know, it's systems and structures that make people make people's lives more efficient and effective, um, and trying to root out the inefficiencies that drive people crazy on the daily. Yeah, I think um, it's just that the systems and structures. When you're about the size you are. If you haven't been paying attention to systems and structures up until this point, when you hit about that 20 employee mark, whether you've been paying attention or not, it's the demand that you do. And the problems get increasingly more difficult and more entrenched if you don't. And it's that constant attention that you have to give them. When you think about um, some of the decisions you've made up until this point in terms of building the team, can you point to a decision that you thought, you know what? If I had to do it over, I would not do that again. <laughs> oh, there's plenty of those. <laughs> um, well, I mean, my whole experience here at the organization, you know, I started in 2017 as director of programming. And then in July of 2019, I became co-executive director with our longtime term emeritus director, David Moore. And he'd been, uh, sorry, he'd been executive director for 15 years. And he was transitioning towards an emeritus role. So he and I were co-EDs for 18 months together. And then in January of 21, I became the executive director by myself. And during that period, we dealt with the pandemic. Um, George Floyd was murdered. And we had a lot of vandalism of our Confederate section that we were dealing with. Um, late 2019, my wife passed away. Um, and so this has just been nothing but learning for me. It's just been, this is my first executive director gig. I thought I knew how to lead and I've just constantly been learning. And I think every experience, even if I would do the same thing again, has been a learning experience, whether it's affirming something I thought I knew that I now actually know in practice or, or whether it's a, I would do it differently again. Um, certainly our focus on culture is something that is, I mean, it probably needed to happen two years ago. Um, I'm not sure we were ready or able to have have those conversations two years ago. Um, But I think one of the other pieces that I've learned, and I, I felt like I've learned a little more courage as a leader in the last 12 or 18 months, is not being afraid of accountability. And... What I mean by that is, you know, as we talk about culture, we need to hold people to account, myself included. So if someone's not not w- working at the standard or, or behaving at the standard that we that we want as an organization, we're going to call that out. We're going to and we're going to work with that person, uh, but we're going to call them out, which maybe we wouldn't have done four or five years ago, and. Um, you know, and that makes for some sometimes uncomfortable conversations. But you know, we need to practice what we preach, and as an organization, and um, and but but I think generally, it's I, I feel like I'm learning every day. It's 
Mm. It's you know what what is written in the the leadership books is not is not what's happening in practice on the ground day to day when you're dealing with people's emotions and personalities. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of, since you mentioned leadership books, where do you go for your own professional development? You know, I'm a researcher. I'm a reader. Um, I try to you know just whether it's journals, magazines, books, just try to consume everything out there. Even if I disagree with it, I want to, you know, try to have a well-rounded perspective. Um, I have a mentor who um, I've known for a long time, who has been in the field for decades and has been the ED of uh, three or four different museums who I try to connect with regularly. Um, And, you know, I think, just be open to learning constantly. And, and you know, I think, I, I, I say this all the time and I, and I truly believe this, which is, I don't ever think I'm the smartest person in the room. And actually the staff around me, they're the experts. So what can I learn from them? What can, what can they teach me? And how can I support them? How do you make sure they feel safe enough teaching you something? I'm real big on the power dynamic between leaders and staff because I actually believe, and please tell me if you disagree so we can argue, (laughs) but I believe most staff members are not fully honest with the people who are in leadership roles. And I think it's a bit of fear and that they don't believe us often when we say, you know, tell us what you think, particularly if you disagree with me. So how do you make it safe for them to teach you things, give you feedback? Yeah. Do you do anything in particular to try to get that? I mean, I think, I think about this all the time and I try to be really accessible to everybody here. So whether you're a senior director or whether you're a coordinator or wherever in between, um, you know, I try to be really accessible but to your point, which is, you know, if if you're making, you know, $19 an hour at the coordinator level and there's two or three people between me and me and them on the org chart, are they going to really tell me what they think? Um, and, and it's something I'm working on all the time. And um, I, I'd love to hear from you about what you've heard that works, because I think this is something we can do more of. Um, I think fundamentally, above everything, is sort of being consistent and, and, and earning people's trust, mm-hmm. which is, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. So, you know, somebody said, you know, we need to, we need to make $15 an hour our minimum wage, which I agreed with. And so we did it, mm-hmm. you know. And then being able to go back to that person and say, look, look what we just did. Thanks, thanks for the great idea. I agreed with you. We made it happen. Um, and, and trying to be the same person every day. And, and, um, and, you know, so that they know who I am and what my reaction is going to be. That, you know, I'm not going to blow up and be volatile if they say something that I disagree with. Um, that I try to, you know, practice active listening you know, at all times. Um, and I'm not perfect. And I think there's, you know, a lot of room for growth. Um, and there was an incident recently with our gardeners where I went and they have a Wednesday team lunch together and I went and joined them. And the moment I walked in the room, 
the atmosphere changed. And I could be out on the ground talking to any of them individually, having a good time, getting to know them, asking about their families, you know, or talking about work at Oakland. But in that room with that group of people, it was like, ooh, the headmasters walked in. <laughs> and, I, and I've really been thinking a lot about it because, you know, I like, What's, what's, the, what's the gap there, right? And it's the power differential, it's the power dynamic. And so um, how do I also empower my senior directors to support their staff and advocate for their staff, but also advocate for the organization? Um, because they may be much more confident, you know, talking to one of the directors or senior directors than they might be to me. Mm-hmm. And then how, you know, so that for my senior team, they know that, they can throw out an idea or we can talk through an issue and, you know, there'll be no, there'll be no judgment or, or ugliness or, or whatever. Um, so, you know, but it's, it's a constant, constant uh, practice. And especially as we've had so many new people join in the team, you know, you have to sort of start from scratch with everybody in terms of building trust and, and um, you know, hope, helping them understand that, I am here to support them and not police them or monitor them or admonish them. Good deal. Um, in terms of conflict on your team, do you have a particular tender spot in the area where your staff members tend to have some challenges around conflict? How do you mean? Um, is there, I'll tell you frankly, the couple of things I'm thinking about. In a lot of the organizations that I deal with that are larger, that I'm seeing, um, increases in unionization Mm -hmm. Um, they seem to have sticking points where no matter what the particular incident is it always revolves around a couple of key issues for instance one organization that i'm working with right now they have a director in a particular department who the employees thinks that she's condescending and her tone so there's always a grievance about how she talks to people on the other hand, um, they often complain that the way discipline is meted out when people make mistakes um, is either too harsh or inconsistent. Mm. So do you have any particular areas where you know these are challenges that are really issues for the staff? And if so, how are you dealing with Well, I mean, I think your point about consistency is, as we think about accountability, as we think about consistency, writing it down. Mm-hmm. So that culture document, it's a living document. It can be added to. Okay. Um, people can contribute to it, but it's there in writing. And it applies to me in the same way that it applies. So that document is open for your entire staff to contribute to? That's right. How did you come up with that idea? Let's talk about that. That's uh, really cool. And I can share it with you as well. Um, you know, I forget what the origin was, except I was talking to a lot of you know, colleagues and friends who work in different industries and different businesses as, you know, I think about work all the time as probably most executive directors do and was thinking a lot about this, these culture questions. And somebody somewhere said, oh yeah, at our organization, we have this culture document and it's open source, it's, it's a living document. And so we created our, I, I took that idea, um, love it when someone else has a good idea that we can borrow from and um, made it our own. Um, and, you know, one of my growth opportunities is I'm such a doer. I want to do, I, I want to solve problems. You know, I'm a type A personality that wants to go into a room and fix things. 
how do I create space for others to do? Um, so the culture document, I empowered the staff and the senior team to, to you know, build that out. And then I reviewed it and then they reviewed it again. So trying to sort of turn the, turn the tables on, it's not just Richard sat there typing it out and then everybody else just responds to it. Um, we're working on an inclusion statement as an organization and I asked the, the senior team to draft it. And then we shared it with the staff, the staff gave feedback. And now the senior team is redrafting it. And I've looked at it along the way and I've made some tweaks and edits, but this is, I'm trying to make this everybody's document. This is not, this is what Richard wants. Um, and that's my learning because I want to go into a room and solve a problem and feel good about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, so the culture document, it has, here's what we expect in our employees in terms of soft skills and, and you know, nimbleness, hard work, communication, so on and so on. Um, but also here's what our workplace expectations are in terms of email communications, um, you know, and, and again, I come back to that word grace where, and we've, we've launched a, we somehow we never had a bereavement policy. And I think that was just an oversight somewhere along the way. Um, and so our bereavement policy is go do what you got to do. We will figure it out on the back end. Nothing's more important than family. Doesn't matter if it's your spouse or your child or your parent or your fifth cousin or your, you know, your your boyfriend's daughter's friend at school, right? Like, <laughs> doesn't matter who it is. Go deal with it. We will cover you on on our end. Like, nothing more important than that. Um, and so. You know, it, but it's writing it down and it's being consistent and it's applying it equally. And, and you know, we will, you know, uh, the board will hold me to the same standard that we hold everyone else to. And I think people appreciate it written down. And, um, you know, certainly there has been, you know, there's been some people that haven't, haven't, you know, felt like this is the organization they wanted to be a part of. And we've, you know, gone our separate ways, but that's, you know, that's part of our growth as an organization. And, and as we hire, be really explicit about that and sharing that document with people in the hiring process. Indeed, indeed. I think that's actually awesome. I love the whole idea of a living culture document and really figuring out how to get people to interface with it, to interact with it. I think it's yeah. really awesome. And, and we just launched this year a, a quarterly pulse survey where it's you know a ten minute survey that people respond in terms of you know how they're feeling about working with their manager and you know work life balance and all these other things, um, and we just did it at the end of the first quarter and we're about to do it at the end of the second quarter here, and so the goal there is that it's anonymous. It's going to give us some metrics. You know, eighty percent strongly agree with this statement. You know, and so every we can track that, and if there's a big red flag, we can talk about it internally, we can come up with some solutions. If our HR person needs to go and, you know, deal with a certain person or a certain group or a certain team or support them and, and help them um, as they work through an issue or a challenge, um, you know, that's going to give us another tool of hearing some of that feedback. Um, so always trying to learn, always trying to come up with, you know, new ways to do what we do. Um, your original question though was about, you know, do we have yeah. recurring issues? Um, you know, I think probably like most nonprofits, one of the one of the recurring challenges that we've had historically is, you know, 
people just get feel burned out at some points of the year. We have a really busy spring when the gardens are in bloom and there's a lot of activity and the weather's nice and so we start doing a lot of programming and we have a lot of work on the grounds um, and then we slow down a little bit in the summer and then we pick up again in the fall where we have a ton of programming you know our halloween tours are, are world famous and, and really lucrative for us and really a wonderful event um, you know the gardens need a lot of love and care and so how do we think about workloads how do we manage people's you know energy levels so that we're not overextending them and I think we've done a better job this year although it's always a work in progress where you know do we need to outsource certain things you know can we afford to contract out certain things to, to protect our people so that they don't work you know those horrendous hours or those long days you know if we can avoid it and, and you know I think we're getting better at that it's not perfect um, I think um, but we're certainly trying and we've and we've again we've been really explicit with the staff which is um, you know, we're, we're not going to ask you to, you know, do things that, you know, are going to compromise the sort of central integrity of their job. And, um, but, it, you know, it's a work in progress because we're always learning. Is your HR person solely focused on HR? Um, our HR person is our, also our CFO. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God, that's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> but, uh, that, the reason I asked, I'm like, so they're in their like, 20 some odd employees. Um, it would have been really uncommon for you to say you had a full time well, HR person. Then I was going to be jealous and talk about no, that. No, I, I, I wish. And actually, um, Emily, our, our CFO HR person, started in. February, mm-hmm. and that's the first time that we've had someone in an HR role other than me as the executive director, and it always made me feel uncomfortable being the HR person and also being the boss. Um, and we've we've always had board members who have HR backgrounds. We have a pro bono attorney who does employment uh, law, who who represents us if we if we have any kind of legal things we need to work through. So we have other tools at our disposal. But yeah, Emily is the first person who isn't. The executive director, who is the HR person, and um, that's really, really been an asset. And um, you know, I think the staff is having to learn to adjust to that dynamic and working and seeing her as an ally and a tool. Um, but you know, that's how we think of her, and that's how she thinks of our role is to support the staff. Indeed, indeed. Now, a job like this can be totally just consuming. What kind of hobbies do you have? What do you do to get away from this place? Uh, what are, what are hobbies? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the nature of the job is it's, it's a lot. And, um, you know, I, I was thinking this morning about how the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, one of my board members called me to make sure I had done something about a matching gift for their Coke stock or something. And um, I didn't answer the phone, I didn't let it go to voicemail, but that's the job, right? Like, you know, you're on vacation and I remember I was at the beach a couple of years ago and was stood at a Starbucks with my son in a stroller sleeping, talking to a donor about a six-figure gift, mm-hmm. you know, and that's unfortunately the job sometimes. Um, you know, I, I do have a young child who is full of life and energy, <laughs> he's almost four, and so, um, you know, when I'm when I'm with him, uh, you know, I'm a single parent of him, and so it's I put my phone away. It's all about him, and trying to have that balance and trying to sort of you know keep that family time and spend time with friends and um, you know the things that really fill me up. Um, 
I, I, you know, I'm not. The work, the work life thing is, is not my strength. And that's something I'm always working on. I'm about to go on vacation next week. And again, COVID was a challenge for that. We were all trapped at home. We couldn't do the things we wanted to do. Um, it was my first ever executive director job and everything felt like the biggest, most urgent problem in the world where now with three or four years experience, I've learned that some things are less important than others or it's okay to give that to someone else to deal with. Um, so I've learned a lot, but it, that is not my strength. And, you know, I love this place. I love the work. I'm all in. I want, I want the organization to succeed. Um, I you know, take pride in my job and so want, want to do it well. Um, and, but, but, you know, spending time with, with my son, my family, um, you know, project around the house, um, you know, that, that always restores me and, and takes me away from work and, you know, wrangling a, an almost four year old is always, is, is always something that, you know, gives you perspective. Do you think being a parent has changed how you lead? I do. It's a great question. I do. I, you know, I was an obnoxious twenty-year-old, twenty-five-year-old. I mean, weren't we all? I'm glad you know. <laughs> no, I was one of those people who, when I started out working in my mid-twenties, was frustrated that not everybody was, you know, all in all the time. And you know, how can people have boundaries? Work's the most important thing. This was obnoxious me, and I think. Being a parent has given me a lot of perspective. Um, it's it's also affirmed my desire to have impact, which is you know at this moment in my career, I'm here at Oakland, making these real improvements to this special place so that people can enjoy it. So what you know, what are the things that are going to make my son's life better? in 10, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, how can, how can we improve life, quality of life, parks, green space, whatever that, whatever those things are so that people can, uh, you know, that our children can um, enjoy them and, you know, having a kid and having the daycare schedule and having to go pick them up by a certain time means that, you know, between five and seven, seven thirty, my phone is away. I'm not working. And it gives you boundaries. It forces you to have boundaries. And whereas before, when you know, before I had kids, you know, work bled into dinner and you know the rest of it. And now they're at nights where I'll open my computer at seven thirty and have to work a little bit after hours. But I try not to as much as possible. Um, and you know, just to have that balance. Wow. Wow. When you leave here, since you mentioned that you're preparing this place to be a wonderful place to be enjoyed for years, what do you think your legacy will be? Hmm. I don't know how to answer that question. Because um, I, I don't, and, and the reason I say it is that I don't think it's about me. Like, I hope, I hope people like working for me, but it's not about me. It's about Oakland. It's about the organization. Um, and I really believe in leaving it better than you found it. And so whenever that moment comes, you know, where... I move on to the next thing in, in, in the next you know phase of my life and my career. Did I leave Historic Oakland Foundation and, and Oakland Cemetery better than I found it? Where, and and you know whether that's the facilities and, and the physical place, whether it's the people, the culture, the the systems, the structure, um, 
you know, I think, um, you know, is it a better place to work? And, um, you know, do people enjoy being here for, for things? And um, if the answer to those questions is yes, then I'll feel, I'll feel really proud of what we've done. Indeed, indeed. Last question. Okay. When I leave you today, yep. I'm going to walk around a little bit. Okay. If there's one place in the cemetery that just, you must see this if you see nothing else. I mean, that's like asking me to choose between children, right? Yes. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. <laughs> I mean, oh, I mean, I have a favorite story of a person buried here. I have a favorite tree on the property. I have so a you favorite. Know those people when they ask you yes or no questions, like, what if I did a little bit? Of <laughs> so you can't hey, choose. Hey. That you're it's called living with complexity, right? Um, um, I mean, I think the thing that we've done in the last, well, I guess it's 12 months, it's last, this time last year, maybe 13 months, we completed the restoration of the historic African-American section, which had 3.2 acres, over 12,000 people buried there. Um, it had been historically neglected. Um, it was low, lowest line of land where it was flood prone and the records were badly kept. So we did this five year, $600,000 restoration project that we completed last year. And we had a really beautiful ribbon cutting uh, ceremony with the mayor and, and other civic leaders. And to me, what's so special about not only have we honored that sacred land and restored it to something that it once was, but as we've uncovered those stories, in some cases, literally, we have been able to put them back into our walking tours, our events, our interpretive programming. Um, and that's really special that we get to sort of continue that legacy in, in how we talk about this place. But also, just the landscape of that section of the cemetery mm -hmm. is so different than the rest. And it's beautiful, it's peaceful. I mean, the whole place is beautiful and peaceful, but, but there's a real energy there that that moves me and um you know so that's that's one but uh you know there's a magnolia tree out here that's got these incredible limbs that sort of go upwards that is it defies gravity it just um you know i have i have favorite trees i like to sit under and just think about um yeah it's 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 48 acres there's something for everybody and we actually we're working on a um uh, visitor guide that will launch later this year and it has a you know what what to see if you have an hour what to see if you have two hours what to see if you have half a day what to see if you have a full day awesome. and with all of the great businesses around here you know people can go get lunch come for a stroll um, come for an hour come for a day I mean there's you know there's something for everybody but um, yeah just walking and getting lost and sitting in the shade it's 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 a it's a pretty special place indeed Richard thank you so so much for your time oh I'm, I'm so happy to be with you thank, thank you for accepting the invitation oh I'm so happy to be here thanks for thanks for coming home to Georgia indeed, indeed. <laughs> this has been a great one thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast if you enjoyed today's episode please rate and subscribe share with your family and friends and be sure to tune in to the next episode of The Leadership Drives.